This is Sam. This is Paul. Hey, I'm Aubrey. And this is Southpaw. So we had a lot of fun talking to Aubrey Citizen and learned a lot about the world of comic books, fight mangas, and pro wrestling. That's on the main show, and that's already around two hours of content. But we also recorded a bonus episode for Patreon that's just about Aubrey's workout and diet plan, and how he lost over 50 pounds, how he got mad strong on a pescatarian diet, and how things like the body, working out, and fitness need to be reclaimed by the left. Because if those things aren't a part of labor and working class culture, then what is? And maybe that's another part of it, that we need to also spend some time focusing on culture and, you know, camaraderie, mental and physical health, and also having fun. So if you want to support us and also listen to the bonus episode with Aubrey, go to patreon.com slash Pod. And if you've ever wondered what our theme song is, it's from Street Fighter 2. Today on the podcast, we have professional comic book writer, Aubrey Citizen, best known for the comic book story of professional wrestling, which might be my favorite book on wrestling and should be the format for all history books. And more recently, he has been making a splash with his new work, No One Left to Fight. Hi, Aubrey. Hey, dude. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. So we have a lot of things we want to discuss with you. We feel like you're a kindred spirit because we share so many interests from comics, fighting and action genres, politics, pro wrestling, manga, to even weightlifting. But first, let's get to No One Left to Fight. Yes. We read the first issue. We love it. Thanks, man. But for people who haven't checked it out yet, how would you describe your new book? You know, the easiest thing is it's a Dragon Ball riff. You know, it's uh, it's a fight comic. But, um, you know, in the lineage of Dragon Ball, obviously, like and I, I say Dragon Ball, not just meaning like the Dragon Ball OG, but the Dragon Ball franchise, right? So Z and Super and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it's part of that larger subgenre that exists in manga, um, specifically like shonen manga for like, so um, let's get deep. Let's get <laughs> deep in the weeds on my nerdy bullshit really fast. But like shonen manga is, you know, in, in Japan, there's manga, which is just comics, right? That's all it means. Um, and then there's, specific genres usually based on gender and age and shonen is like you know early to mid teen boy comics right and so you're looking at things like dragon ball and naruto and um one piece and um, one punch man even you know like these are comics that you know they're so that they're designed for that audience and the biggest kind of like subgenre within that subgenre are fight comics, right? And it's all about who's the best. It's all about training and cha- and becoming a champion. And there's usually tournaments at some point. And th- this extends also into um, seinen manga, which is for slightly older. It's for like slightly older teenage boys, right? Um, and so it gets a little bit more violent, maybe a little bit more sexual. Um, and so that's things like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and... Um, uh, Fist of the North Star and, and things like that um, that are still, you know, fight. So fight manga is like this broader 
thing that spans um, these different types of manga, if that makes sense. It's like these overlapping taxonomies. And, uh, you know, No One Left to Fight is myself and Fico Osio. He's my uh, co-creator. He does all the art. Like, you see these, like, gorgeous eye-searing colors on it, and that's all him. He takes it from pencils to colors. And it started from us wanting to work together and finding out that we're both huge Dragon Ball fans um, and that, you know, there are things that Dragon Ball does better than anything else. And we adore that comic and that the anime and the world and those characters and like that, the type of combat that's done. Cause it's a very, you mentioned the wrestling stuff. It's a Dragon Ball is a very wrestling esque show, right. In terms of like the build to these big matches and heel turns and stuff like that. And we wanted to do something that hits all those notes and scratches all those itches for us. Um, but you know, I'm, from the United States and he's from Buenos Aires. And so we're both, you know, we're neither of us are Japanese. Uh, we're Americans and we're from the American comics tradition. And so we wanted to hit all those notes and do everything we love about Dragon Ball. But instead of like a 40 volume black and white manga series, that's paced like manga because the, the pacing is very, very different than American comics. Um, we wanted to do it like an American comic. And so it's a five issue limit series. It's from Dark Horse who publishes, Hellboy and Black Hammer and Umbrella Academy. And um, it's doing gangbusters, man. I'm kind of overwhelmed. Like, so we're like a, about a week out from San Diego Comic-Con and I'm still kind of overwhelmed and exhausted by it because, you know, prior to the, like earlier that month, the first issue came out, it sold out instantly. Uh, they sent it back to a second printing immediately, which is something that Dark Horse doesn't often do with their books. And we got that coming out on August 14th um, and right after the second issue hits, August 7th. And it's um, it's impossible to find too, which is really exciting for me too. Like the demand so great, like on eBay, it was going for like 20 bucks a pop. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, man, it's bananas. Uh, it's nuts. Uh, and it's I've never had this kind of huge immediate reception to my work before like people love the comic book story of professional wrestling but it wasn't as like um uh fanatical a thing um so yeah man we're overjoyed it's that it's hitting with people because it felt like a very and it was pitching it to people it felt like a very strange idiosyncratic thing right it's like oh it's the it's an american guy an argentinian guy doing a dragon ball riff people are like what what are you <laughs> but like i think what you know there's a few things that work here. And like, one of them is that Dragon Ball has been around for this is its 30th anniversary. People have grown up with Dragon Ball. Multiple generations of people have grown up with Dragon Ball. So the thing that I tell people a lot is, you know, cause people think like, you know, you're just ripping off Dragon Ball. Like, what is this? I was like, no, 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 man. These are archetypes. These are, um, these are archetypal characters, Goku, Vegeta, Bulma, who have like embedded themselves in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, and if you just like by the numbers, man, um, Goku has been around for 30 years at this point, right? That means that Goku has been around now as long as Spider-Man had in the 90s, right? Spider-Man, pretty established in the 90s, I think, <laughs> fair to say, right? So yeah, these aren't, these aren't weird or strange concepts. These are, um, these are things that, especially millennials and younger, are all about. And they're just, they're dyed-in-the-wool Dragon Ball fans. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is um, Fico's Colors. It looks like un it looks unlike anything else on the racks, and people respond to that instantly because there has been a trend in comics towards you know darker stuff aesthetically, aesthetically yeah. dark stuff, and this idea that you know if you want to impart mood or drama, you do so by going dark. You use dark colors, and that's not what our book is. Our book looks like you know um, like methed up 
Lisa Frank aesthetic, right? Like it's, it's really intense. It's lots of pinks and purples and bright, like electric blues and stuff like that. Um, and he uses that stuff expertly to hit all these dramatic moments. And I think that's kind of the other thing is that it's, you know, it's all the stuff we like about Dragon Ball, but it's kind of put into the format and the pacing of um, more American style comic book stories. Um, and so it's a lot about um, getting older. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot about, you know, the, it's called no one left to fight. And the reason it's called that is that it's after the big world saving battle, right? After our Goku saying his name is Vale, like after he saved the world, after he's beaten the big bad guy and there is no one left to fight. Um, and it's about kind of getting older moving into your thirties and, you know, like having regrets and resentment and figuring out, you know, once you've achieved the thing that you've always strive for for decades what do you do next like and i think that that i don't know it's the thing that is really profound and important for fico and i and something we talked about a lot it's like a very person it's the most personal thing we've ever written for sure which it sounds weird about this like weird science fantasy fight comic with like pet octopus and stuff like that but it is man because i think that that's and i think that's a common feeling for a lot of people and it's something that doesn't get acknowledged too much right like people talk a lot about like you know these coming of age like you, you have a lot of coming of age tales you've got a lot of you've got a lot of midlife crisis stories and stuff but like there's you know there's a lot of like angst in your 30s i think um how old are y'all i'm in my actually i think i'm gonna be 40 yeah so you <laughs> i have know, no idea you know man you're <laughs> you're angst ridden you know like in your 30s there's a lot of angst about you know because like the 30s are the point where you've like you've still got some latitude to make some choices and to do things, but not as much as you used to. And like, you're locked in, you're locked in in a lot of ways by the choices that you made a decade ago or more. And I think that that's kind of the first time that you really experience that. Cause when you're twenties, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can change careers. You can, you know, you can just up and move across the country. And by the time you get in your thirties, you've got these responsibilities and you're locked into a certain path. And that's the kind of stuff we explore with, of course, a bunch of fighting and superpowers and monsters and things like that. Did you and Fico grow up watching Dragon Ball Z? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Not together uh, because we we're <laughs> different continents and all. Um, but yeah, man, we were huge Dragon Ball fans. Um, I came to I came to it first through Dragon Ball Z and then later went back and watched Dragon Ball. Um, he's a little bit older than me, so I think he started with Dragon Ball um, and then watched it straight through. Was this comic also informed by video games? Because it kind of, to me, had a Final Fantasy VII kind of vibe to it also. It's funny, man. Like, so when I first started um, promoting the comic and like call it, man, I, I did a ton of work. I called like um, something like 15 or 18% of the total comic book shops in the country. I just, I just cold called uh, because I wanted people to stock this thing. And it was, I knew it, you know, it's a new number one by this. It's not like an established IP or anything. So I wanted to, I wanted to at least give it a shot, right? Um, and so I called a bazillion people and it's funny that you say Final Fantasy seven, because when I first started calling people, I'd be like, listen, it's a Dragon Ball riff. If you got Dragon Ball fans, this yeah. is the book for them. And it's easier for you to stock and sell than all these other manga. Like I had my whole pitch and then within like, I don't know, an, the first hour of doing these things, I started getting people sit, like they would open it up and they'd be like, oh, cool. It's like a, it's like a street fighter thing. And at first I was like, no, 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 no. It's a Dragon Ball thing. It's not a street fighter thing. It's a Dragon Ball thing. And it's a riff on Dragon Ball. Um, and then I realized that, you know these the things we're, we're talking about they pull from the same well right you know like dragon ball street fighter even final fantasy like they pull from kind of like the same aesthetic traditions um and sometimes even like story-based stuff and just like simple stuff like you know 
um, a Kamehameha or a um, Hadouken, right? Like, I don't know. It's, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, it's the same thing, man. It's just, it's a, it's a martial arts guy focusing his chi and shooting it out in a blast. It's the same idea. So um, I very quickly started saying, yes, exactly. It's a Street Fighter <laughs> influence thing as well. It's Dragon Ball and it's Street Fighter. But it's, you know, it's, it, it, there's so much cross-pollination between those things so yeah man like i mean it started very much as a dragon ball thing um but as we've moved on we have pulled in a lot of different elements from stuff we like a lot of it um manga and anime based um a lot of it not honestly <laughs> just like, just bits and pieces from all over that we dig going into it did you guys already know that there was uh such a American audience already now because of 30 years of Dragon Ball and other things that they may have grown up with on Cartoon Network or whatever, that there was an American contingency just like there is in Japan for a magazine like this or a comic like this? Yeah, of course, man. I mean, like, so the secret origin of No One Left to Fight was in 2016 or seven, no, 17. So um, 2017, San Diego Comic Con, Fico and I were on the floor and uh, we were chit-chatting and we heard this noise coming from across the floor and like you know have you been to comic-con before okay it's a trip everybody should go if they, <laughs> if they can uh it's bananas uh but uh you know it's packed and it's loud and there's just it's sensory overload constantly especially like if you're like us we were there for business you know so we're also so it's like it's a consumer show but it's also a trade show you're trying to network and stuff and we're on the floor and we're chit-chatting and we just kept hearing ah, ah, just over and over again like different voices and i was like what is that what what is going on and he was like oh dude you didn't see there is over there at the funimation booth you can get in this like in this like booth and um it's a green screen and you scream and power up and they turn you into a super saiyan and send you the video and they were playing the audio over like loudspeakers of like just nerds like lining up for miles just to get in there and have like their hair turn yellow um and we Kind of, and I thought that was amazing. Not amazing enough to go wait in line because <laughs> nothing can get me to wait in a line at Comic Con. Um, but uh, we realized that we were both huge Dragon Ball fans, and we had been talking for like literally a year at that point because we'd met at San Diego Comic Con 2016. Um, we'd been talking about working together, and we just didn't know what the thing was because we were both kind of um, working on different stuff. And um, we started talking, and no one left to fight really did come from a place of us just realizing we both love Dragon Ball and that there was nothing else that there's nothing, certainly nothing in American comics that hit for us the way that Dragon Ball did and that accomplished the things that Dragon Ball did. So yeah, man, like, I, and that's part of the reason that I was okay spending hours upon hours calling hundreds of comic book shops to tell about this thing because I knew that there was an audience for it, right? It was just about getting it in front of those people. What are the differences between manga and American comic books as far as like page flow or because, you know, what I found was when I was reading your your book, I kept reading it from right to left for some reason because I got tricked. (laughs) I know how to read American comics. How how was it? How was it reading it backwards? (laughs) It still kind of makes sense. But it was because it felt so like unconsciously manga ish to me. Oh, cool. That I was doing that. So what are the differences? So I think, you know. The thing you just mentioned, the right to left one, that's the thing that trips a lot of people up because you just do, you used to have to get used to reading from right to left, unless it's one of the ones that, you know, a lot of manga was um, published, you know, a lot of like kind of like 
very like important foundational manga like Lone Wolf and Cub and Akira and stuff like that was published before, like back when they thought that American audiences could not learn how to read right to left. And so they would flip it. Um, these days, most everything is published as originally. Um, so it's right to left because yeah, you can, it's, it's a thing you can learn. It's not a big deal. Right. Um, that to me, that's just kind of an aesthetic difference, right? Along with things like the the jagged haircuts and the big eyes and the swords and like like all the like all those things are just trappings and they are um, typical, but they're not universal in terms of um, you know, there's all different types of manga art, right? Beyond just like kind of the standard like um, shown in and showed you um, aesthetics, right? For me, the biggest thing, um, and I've thought about this a lot actually, you know, because if you want to do an American comic that hits the way Dragon Ball does, and you have to make certain concessions because um, American comics do not work the way that m manga does. And the reason, <laughs> first of all, uh, what do you, what do you say? How do you say it? Manga or manga? I, I think I say both. Yeah, I do too. I do. I think you're supposed to say manga, but like, I, like I've always said manga and I'm, I am terrified that somebody's going to call me like a fake geek girl because I, <laughs> I do like the bad pronunciation. So I'm just going to say manga because it's easier for me. I've been, I've, been, I've been struggling this interview to say it properly. Manga, uh, I'm from the South. Um, so the big thing for me, and I think that all, there's a lot of differences that come out of this and we can talk about it. If you, we can get really granular if you want. But the big thing for me is how manga is published, right? In America, comic books are typically published in one or two ways, right? If they're put out in comic book shops, they're usually single issues. That's what No One Left to Fight is. You know, it's five single issues that will later be collected into, we call it a trade paperback or graphic novel. It's the same thing, right? These are just format names. It's all just comics, including manga. It's all just comics. Manga, however, is typically, not always, but typically, is published in short bursts in these magazines, right? Um, anywhere between like five and 10 pages, depending on the title and the magazine and how popular it is and stuff like that. Um, and it's published weekly, you know? So it's a very different pace. Um, and manga, a lot of manga is published in these magazines where it's a competition practice. You know, it's a competition for your space and you have to earn your space and they'll have like fan votes and stuff like that and see which ones are the most popular. And it's not like, it's not, it's not exactly like Survivor with the lowest one getting voted off the island all the time, but that does happen. And that, and so it's incumbent upon you that, you know, you have six pages or whatever it is, you have to keep people's interest. You have to get them excited and get them interested in what you're doing right now. And they have to love the six pages because then they're on to something else, right? That's a very different storytelling requirement than here, here's 20 pages, right? And it's a way different one than here is 100 or 120 pages, you know? Um, so there are pacing concerns um, that are very different. And, you know, as a result, a lot of manga will allied things that American comics won't, you know, and I think a lot of American diehard American comics readers, they struggle with manga sometimes because they're no, they're not as many establishing shots um, because it takes up space. There's no room for it. Right. You know, like in, in comics, it's different from television or film because um, everything, including dialogue, it's not time, it's space. Right. You know, like, um, my wife watches a lot of Gilmore girls. Um, so like, you know, there, so I, I'm fully aware that there's like no upper limit to how much dialogue you can put in a television <laughs> show, right? You just just talk faster, just get it in there. In comics, there is, there's an upper limit because there's only so much space on the page. And if you're using space for word balloons, you're not using it for action or whatever else you want to do. So, you know, um, page real estate is really important and um, it's used very differently in manga than it is in American comics. That to me is the biggest thing in terms, and because of that, there are different expectations from the audiences. You know, like I think that American audiences expect 
a little bit slower of a burn and they expect um kind of more like specific character work whereas manga audiences typically are a little bit more willing to just go along with plot for a while until the character stuff kicks in um and i think it's just it's a matter of format more than anything yeah actually i wanted to touch upon that because you were talking about the aesthetics of manga and you were talking about establishing shots right so i think american comic books the way not they're written but that they're drawn we're more used to it as far as movies but as far as writing goes for manga that feels more like the storytelling of tv shows and movies meaning like when i read uh one punch man or attack on titan or my hero academia you could almost like take the story the way it was written and the dialogue and just make it an anime without much change the shots might look different but the story remains the same whereas if you try to do that with an x-men issue Maybe a lot of the shots are there, but some of the story has to be tweaked a little bit more than I noticed with manga to animate it conversion. Does. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that, part of that, what you're describing there, this is another like big kind of like broad formal difference between most manga and most American comics. Not, we're talking generalities here, right? Um, you know, most manga is, um, it's the work of an auteur who has typically a studio, right, of people working with them in order to produce six or 10 pages a week. They have to have people working with them, but it's them kind of guiding this ship, right? And they are usually, typically, again, not always, but typically they are writer and artist, you know? Um, and so I think that that lends itself to a more visually oriented comic, right? Um, where the visuals and the rhythms and the pacing of it take a lot more importance and precedence than most American comics. Because most American comics, instead of working as a studio, they're an assembly line, right? And th and this is this is like this seems like kind of like a very subtle difference, but it, I think it has big effects, right? Because in American comics, um, the way things are typically done is the writer writes a script and then sends it to the penciler. And then they pencil it and then they send it to the inker and then the colorist and then the letterer. And every step of the way, people are coming in and they're putting their own spin on things and doing their own contributions. Um, but what that means is you either have books that are primarily writer driven, right? Um, unless you, ha you have a situation where, and this is what Fico and I have tried to do, um, where we really work in concert and we work in unison and we work together to, you know, this isn't, this. people ask me sometimes, like, how'd you pitch? fico on the story it's like no 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 that's not <laughs> that's not at all what happened fico and i built the story together you know fico and i like developed the story in um in concert with all the character designs and the look of the world and the coloring approach and these things informed each other and so that's also something that we tried to you know it's for us it was all about figuring out the things we love about ma these manga that we that we adore and finding ways to do them in american comics with all of the formal and kind of business and logistical limitations. That guy's in on that guy's in a different hemisphere of the planet than I am, you know? So we can't sit in the same room and do it, but we can work together from Jump Street to develop everything. When you talk about the difference between American comics and manga, I noticed when you say, hey, we're on a time crunch, you have six pages. Is that also why a lot of manga, at least the ones that I've seen, aren't colored? So that's another huge difference, obviously, right? The fact that ours is like eye searingly brightly colored and most yeah. manga is black and white. Um, I think that the, that's certainly part of it, right? But the real reason is how these, again, how these things are published. They're published in cheap magazines, cheap, thick magazines that people buy and read on a subway and then throw away when they're done with them, right? It's still like, 
that that industry is designed still designed around churning out fast weekly content and um the content reflects that and i don't mean that in a dismissive way but it's just it it reads like something that you know if you read a volume of manga which is how most americans read their manga that's not how it was originally published uh, you know like it's it's been collected but like it's that's not the original that's not the original format that it was it was designed to be read in and i'm not saying that you shouldn't read it that way but it's just interesting to think about like how that and so this is a fascinating thing too about how american audiences who've grown up reading manga but only reading it in this collected format how it's changed their storytelling expectations in terms of pacing and character development and things like that because they are used to picking up something that's like okay here's volume one of one punch man and it's not a complete story the way that you would expect from volume one of saga or something right like which is a really popular image comic you know um it's you know or sandman or preacher or, i don't know pick a i'm just listing comics at you now um but uh, it's not it's not a complete story you know and it's not structured like a traditional narrative the same way we think in terms of like three-act structure or whatever you know like robert mckee would have like like he would blow a gasket trying to like think about how one punch man is structured but the audiences reading it don't care they love it you know and it's so i think that it's fascinating and again it's something that we've tried to take into account and use and utilize and play off of the fact that sometimes i think american comic book creators are playing by an old rule book that doesn't quite apply as much as it used to things of audience expectations especially amongst younger audiences have changed drastically and so you know for us it's been a chat the challenge has been okay how do we how do we evoke that and how do we do all the stuff that manga does so well within a completely different structural framework um for in a way that appeals to both you know because the fact of the matter is like you know i i certainly i know from talking to people that some manga readers have really enjoyed no one left to fight but not all of them because it's not manga if they want to read manga they'll read manga so like we also want to appeal to american comics readers you know and so finding a way to kind of split the middle and like do this stuff but in a way that's palatable for american audiences or for american comics specific audiences that's been the real challenge i mean what's fun about it honestly i like um whatever i work on whether it's no left fight or the comic story professional wrestling you mentioned i like to come in with kind of like theses right <laughs> in terms of like what it's about and like thematic stuff but also the formal approach you know it's like a real like um it's a real bauhaus type of thing that you know that <laughs> Uh, like form should follow function. Like I believe that, you know, and like form should follow function. And if you can't make the form follow the function, you should make the function follow the form. How do you know all this shit? Uh, read some books, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, real, I'm over-educated is what yeah, I Yeah, we're going to get into that about your origin story, but no one left to fight. You mentioned how it was something that you and Fico created together. But what about the story about, maybe it was just more of a general idea of wanting to tell a story about being in your 30s and the things you did in the past traps you in the present. Is that a story that you've been wanting to tell for a while, but you didn't know how or what it would look like or evolved the other way? That became the story as you were working with them. I think it's the latter, man. I mean, and it's something that it's, it came about from conversations that Fico and I are both having because we've both been kicking around comics for a while, man. And we've done a lot of stuff and, um, had you know worked on a lot of books i edited i used to be an editor at marvel and i edited walking dead and um kick ass and like all these like big titles and stuff as an editor um but you know what i really wanted to be doing was writing and you know 
both of us were kind of feeling the pressure of <laughs> like, we're not old guys, we're like in our thirties, but like you, it's what I was talking about earlier. It's like, that's the feeling we were having of like, so, you know, we've worked so hard and we've had this goal and we trying to get there. And then like you get, you, you once you accomplish, you know, we've, we've done all these comics, which is like what we dreamed of when we were younger, but it's still not enough, right? Like <laughs> you want the next thing and you want something bigger and you want something better. And, you know, we've done all these licensed comics, but now we wanted to do our own comic. We wanted to make up our own story, which is no one left to fight. And, uh, you know, our own characters and, you know, this, our own world. And yeah, man, I think it really grew out of that and like kind of, and also kind of picking apart the things that always interest us the most about Dragon Ball, which for me was the rivalry between um, Goku and Vegeta, right? Like, and I think that's not uncommon. That's everybody's favorite thing about because it it's the dopest, right? And like, and even going back further, you know, like looking at the rivalry between Goku and Yamcha or Goku and Tien or, you know, like that's always the most interesting stuff is like this. Um, in any of these fight mangas, you know, and so finding a way to kind of amplify that and pick that apart and really dig in deep. So you guys almost had to do a deconstruction. What makes this work? What is interesting yeah. about this? I mean, so like, it's not, we did, like we did in, in developing this thing, I would say we definitely did kind of try and deconstruct Dragon Ball and like take it apart and like figure out what the pieces are and what we wanted to use. But I kind of hesitate to call No One Left to Fight a deconstructionist story because it's not it doesn't work like you know something like i think about like watchmen is like the quintessential deconstructionist comic right because it takes superheroes and it doesn't just figure out what works about them and use it it blows them apart right it inverts them and um changes things around and um, recontextualizes and stuff like that that's not what we're doing here we really we deconstruct it to figure out how how it works and then kind of put it back together in a different it's like you know what it is it's um it's like it's like we bought a motorcycle and then we stripped it down and we turned it into a chopper, right? Like it's it's still a motorcycle. It still works the same way that a motorcycle does, um, but it's just kind of different. And it's kind of it's leaned out because it's only five twenty page issues, right? And this is another thing, man. In a fight in a fight manga, five twenty page issues that's a hundred pages, dude. There are fights in One Punch Man that are one hundred pages, like <laughs> single fights that last for a hundred pages, right? Yeah, yeah. So like we really did have to strip it down. It's a I'm going to use this more. Um, I just came up with this. No one left to fight is like a chopper. It is lean and mean and loud. How about that? Were there any American comic books that you feel influenced No One Left to Fight? I know you said it's a DBZ riff. Yeah. So were there any American comic books that you kind of look towards like, ooh, this is kind of cool? Yeah, um, of course. I mean, like, so I, you know, my background is in American comics, you know, and like that is American comics really are. So I came to Dragon. So I was a Dragon Ball fan before I was a manga fan. And that's another thing I think is really common with people, right? You know, like they, there are people who watch Dragon Ball Z, they play the video game, they have t-shirts and wall scrolls and like all that goofy stuff, but they don't read the manga, you know, like that's how ubiquitous Dragon Ball is. Um, so yeah, I, as I mentioned, I worked at Marvel and um, edited image books and stuff like that. So I'm a diehard um, American comics fan. Um, in terms of influence on um, No One Left to Fight, there were a few things that uh, the thesis statements, right? That I was talking about earlier. There are a few things that I really was trying to do in terms of the writing of it and the approach. And they were informed by a lot of different comics, but I think like probably the best examples are um, uh, Howard Chaikin's American flag, right? Um, and Times Squared and some other work, but American flag is my favorite of his. Um, and then other kind of like more art comic stuff like Charles Burns um, and more, and like Euro comics like uh, Mobius and, um, the things I took from these, and it's different things from 
you know, the Chaikin stuff as opposed to kind of the more comic stuff. What I took from the Chaikin stuff is that Chaikin is better than most anybody at layering subtlety into his comics work. Comics are typically not a very subtle medium. Um, at least like mainstream American genre comics, right? It's a thing you see a lot in art comics and indie comics, but not so much in mainstream genre. And what I mean by that is Chaikin comics expect you to pay attention and they expect you to not only pay attention and remember stuff, but think about stuff and put things together on your own, right? There's not a lot of, there's no hand holding in this stuff. Um, I remember I read an interview years and years ago about his American flag, which is one of my all time favorite comics. People should, it's far more influential than most people realize. And I, um, I was reading this interview and somebody was like, you know, Howard, I read the first issue of American flag and I was kind of confused about X, Y, and Z. And I didn't really understand. And his response was, well, you should read it again slower this time, right? <laughs> Take your time with it uh, and, and figure it out because, you know, there is this expectation with comics that it's just something you just power through. You mainline it as quickly as possible and then you get the, you binge it. It's binge culture, right? And I think that that works at odds with the formal nature of comics, right? Um, and this is some Scott McCloud shit. If you ever read like Understanding Comics or anything. I love that one. It's great. Um, you know, one of the things he talks about is that the magic of comics is in the gutters, right? And what that means is that, you know, you're looking at a page of comics, you know, they're the panels, which are the, I'm going to do this. I don't know if people are like comics fans listening to this. So like, you know, they're the panels, which are like the boxes, right? And then in between them, there's typically space, right? Not always, but typically, and it's typically white, you know, it can be any color, but we're talking generalities. And that white space is called the gutter, right? It's like the gutter in the street, right? Um, and that's where all the magic happens because a comic book page is static images, right? Um, and it's static images meant to tell you a story and to convey meaning and depth to you. Um, but in order for that to work, it's kind of like a magic trick, right? Um, you have to get the audience to be complicit in doing the heavy lifting, right? Just like a magic trick or like a wrestling match, you know? Um, in order for any of this stuff to work, the audience needs to be in on it. The audience needs to want to be conned, to want to be tricked, to want to believe that the five static images on this page are actually moving with real people delivering these lines of dialogue. In order for that to happen, the panels need to be chosen properly and drawn properly to convey this sense of motion, the illusion of motion, so that readers then in the gutters can do all the heavy lifting right? That to me is like the goal of writing a comic book is you want to write the panels in such a way that every panel is something visually fascinating and awesome to look at. Number one, that's first and foremost. And number two, that all the boring stuff, the reader handles for you, right? Let the reader do like, you know, like a guy walking across the room, let the reader do that themselves. Give me the guy, <laughs> give me the guy punching somebody once he gets there, you know? And so it's all about aligning the unnecessary stuff. And just, again, it's, it's a chopper approach. It's stripping things down. Um, and I think that that should get extended also to broader storytelling concerns um, in comics. Um, because again, you're, you have such limited space and so much, you know, people talk a lot of times about like people describe like, like I, one time I read like Paul Pope was talking about how, you know, a typical graphic novel only has like the amount of story content, like plot content of like a short story, right? And like people get people get really. I remember people got really offended by that because they thought he was talking down about comics, and he wasn't. I mean, that guy's a brilliant cartoonist in his own right. What he was saying though was that comics offer different things. You know, comics offer this visual aspect, um, and so trying to, you know, you have to. Again, it comes back to using the actual format that you're given to the best of your abilities. You know, and that's always a really important thing to me. So 
The first thing is subtlety and making sure that there's more going on behind the scenes and that there are inner inner lives to all these characters and that the things they say, you know, there's what they what they say and then there's what they mean. And these things sometimes are the same and sometimes they're not. And there is stuff in that first issue that we do not explain. And you do, you know, I've I'm really relieved that y'all haven't asked me any of these questions, but like I've done some interviews and people are just like, okay, so let me ask you and like ask you all these questions. I was like, well, that's I mean, you're asking me to explain the book to you, man. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. I want, I want you to read it for yourself and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. piece it together because I, I know that it's going to be more meaningful to you that way. Yeah. And you're going to find your own meaning in it. And that's the other thing too, is I don't want to dictate what this thing is about any more than I already have talking about like the yeah. themes and stuff we've explored, you know? So that's the first thing is like the subtlety and the depth of work like Chaikin's American Flag. Um, the other thing that I was really trying to pull from was I really enjoyed recently charles burns's x'd out trilogy and this is kind of more like arts art comics type stuff um it's brilliant it's beautiful stuff and it's surreal and weird and kind of it feels lackadaisically paced um, because it's not as plot heavy um and in the past i've written really plot heavy stuff because i like i like that kind of material I, I like a really packed um like clean clockwork plot you know <laughs> like a lot of moving pieces it all comes together um but you know it's something that i've kind of realized that you know by doing that almost exclusively i was leaving a lot of the tools on the table um and in terms of like setting mood and again allowing the readers to do the heavy lifting themselves and so um i tried to you know learn from that in terms of like not needing everything to just be beat by beat by beat by beat and like having some scene setting panels and you know even pay the first page of no one left to fight is there's no story content there but it's all about being immersive it's a big splash of ale walking into this city um and yeah so like it's that's the other thing that I, and I, that's present as well in you know kind of more of like mobius's like quieter story like i'm reading world of adina right now which has a lot of chit chat in it but like <laughs> Like his more, his more quiet stories, like Arzak stuff and things like that. You know, it's really about using the visuals to set a mood and um, encouraging the reader to kind of piece things together on their own. You mentioned earlier that you used to be an editor. And I think for most of us fans, we just know the writer, the publisher, and the artist. What does an editor do on a comic book? Uh, I tell people, you know, it's, you've got two roles as an editor in a comic book. You've, you do quality control, your quality control, and you're also a traffic cop. Right. So you make sure. So as I mentioned earlier, it's an assembly line. Right. So on a lot of comics, you've got a penciler, an ink or a writer, a penciler, an inker, a colorist and a letterer. That's five individual freelancers working on monthly titles. Um, that's a lot of people to manage. Um, and that's most of your time in my experience, you know, is just making sure that everybody's getting their stuff done on time, that it's good and that it's going on to the next person. Right. But you do quality. So you're definitely doing like scheduling and traffic cop and calling people to make sure they're getting their pages in and handholding and stuff like that. But you're also doing quality control at every step of the way, which means that you are a story editor you are a copy editor, you are a art director, right? You're giving notes on coloring, on lettering, on the cover designs and all of that stuff. So it was, it was my first job out of college and it was, um, it was enormously helpful and crucial for me to develop the understanding that I have of comics. Um, and that's why I, because I, I always knew that I wanted to write comics and I figured what better way to learn to write comics than to learn how to do all of it and how do you do that you become an editor you become the person who manages all of that stuff so um yeah man it was i edited for marvel i edited at marvel for three years and i um 
I learned an immense amount about how comic books are put together and also each of the individual disciplines. And it's something I try and keep in mind. Um, again, like I mentioned earlier, like American comics are very writer focused and writer driven. Um, and I think that a lot of times that's to American comics detriment because it's a visual medium still, you know, and if you're writing a comic, I mentioned this earlier, but you know, you're not in the back of your mind, in the forefront of your mind, you should always be thinking about how to make this thing visual. Because if you're not, write a short story, write a novel, right? Like do go go write something that doesn't require visuals to make it work. You mentioned earlier that this is original characters that you and Vico created together, right? And you were talking about how you were calling comic book stores to carry your book. But especially when it's something original and it's your idea, how do you pitch it to publishers? Because usually you think of it as like you're hiring freelancers, hire guns. Here's a IP we already own write for it or draw for it. But when you have your own idea, what is that process like to get it published? So are you talking about pitching publishers or retailers? And what's the difference? Like, do you have to pitch retailers first to say, hey, here's the demand, and then you go to the publisher? Like, how does Not usually. Um, so, you know, the difference between a publisher and a retailer, a publisher, my publisher is Dark Horse, right? That's a company that actually puts out this comic. And then the retailers are the comic book shops that sell it, right? Your local comic book shop. And eventually once it's collected in a trade, bookstores and Amazon and things like that. Um, those are the retailers. Um, for pitching to the, so pitching the publisher comes first almost all the time. I mean, there might be some instances where people like get like retailers to demand a thing that exists, but that, that seems like a more difficult way to go about doing things. Uh, the trick is getting a publisher on board with it. And I was really fortunate. Our editor, um, Brett Israel at, um, Dark Horse, he's a big wrestling fan and he was a fan of my stuff from my wrestling graphic novel and my wrestling podcast straight shoot that I used to do. So he was familiar with my work already and he was already kind of on board with the Aubrey vibe. Um, and Fico and I developed this thing. We had done sample pages that he had fully colored and we had Taylor Esposito as our letter, our amazing letter. He lettered it for us and we worked up a pitch and an outline and stuff like that. And we came in and we said, you know, um, it's Dragon Ball, but it's American Dragon Ball. And it's about, you know, moving into your thirties and getting older and, <laughs> and like the regrets and the resentments that come with all of that stuff. Um, and that was how we sold it to him. Um, and they, they read the sample pages and they dug it and they kind of could see how different it was than anything else they were publishing and anything else being published anywhere in America. Honestly, it's a, it's a different vibe book. It's paced differently. It, it feels and looks different. Um, and that's kind of, that's why I sold it to dark horse, um, to the retailers. It was, um, it was more, it was more crass. It was more immersed. It was more of a mercenary approach. Um, just cause like, I, you know, I had, I didn't know how much time I had talking to these folks on the phone. Sometimes they were really busy and they did not want to be talking to me. And so all it came down to is like, listen, it, here's the page it is of the catalog. It is no one left to fight. It is um, eye searing colors and it's a Dragon Ball riff, but it's a Dragon Ball riff that doesn't take up a full wall of your store, right? It's yeah. one comic book because it, it's it's difficult for retailers, comic book retailers to stock manga because, you know, um, Berserk has like 40 volumes, yeah. right? Um, you want to have the newest one so people can buy it, but you also want to have the first one so that people can start reading it. But you also want to keep that person reading. So then you're like, well, wait a minute, do I have to keep in stock 40 of these things? And even if you have space and capital to expend on that, even if you do, they go out of print. So like right now, you know, like, and I don't know off the top of my head, but like any manga, you know, any long running manga, there's some volumes that are not in print right now. And so if you're a comic book shop and you want to make it so your customers can buy all of this manga, it's impossible sometimes. Um, and 
So that honestly, like if I had enough time, that was something I used to pitch the retailers too, just about how much easier this was going to be to sell people. Um, and also what I was talking about earlier, this this idea that Dragon Ball has been around for 30 years and Dragon Ball is bigger than just manga fandom. You know, there are plenty of people who are Dragon Ball fans, but do not read manga. They don't read the Dragon Ball manga. They just watch the cartoons. They watch Super. They play the video games. You know, they don't read any other manga. It's just Dragon Ball for them. And this is something that you could put in their hands and it would click and they would understand. It almost sounds like the same process then that today's current like book writers, like regular books, like novels to nonfiction, what they have to do where just because you got a publishing deal doesn't mean you're done. You're also the one in charge of like getting the name out there for your book and like trying to get on, you know, different things and calling bookstores. Hey, can you carry my book? It sounds like comic books is a similar process. Of course. I mean, that's everything these days, you know, like I think that a lot of people still expect, um, media creative work to operate the same way it did 20 or 30 years ago and it just does not and it it should right like like i i'm not saying that it's good that we've devalued creative work to this to the point that we have certainly right um but we have and that's the situation we're in and i have a really smart friend um chris radke who used to be an editor of mine um at a couple different websites where i did some writing and he always said to me, he's like, you know, it used to be that your job was done as a writer. Your job was done once you finished writing something, uh, but that's not the case anymore. Now your job is done once everybody's seen it. Um, and I take that pretty seriously um, as like people can probably notice from my online presence um, because, you know, like I, there are, there is this, ten, this weird tendency that I'm not a big fan of where it's kind of like this sad sack like oh you know it's like the self-deprecating like oh, i wrote this thing and maybe you want to check it out and uh, i hate plugging my own work and i don't want to share these good reviews i like all this stuff and, and i'm thinking no dude i there's nothing there's nothing i like more than sharing good reviews of my work <laughs> <laughs> and why not right like if you the, the way i see it is if I'm not, ex if you're not excited, if you've created something and you're not excited about it and proud of it, then you should go back to the lab. You should have worked harder. You should have, you should have worked on it until you were, right? Don't put something out in the world that you're not excited about. Don't put something out in the world that you are, that you have any room to be self-deprecating about. Look at your work objectively, learn from it, right? And like learn from your past. I talked about that like a few minutes ago talking about like stuff I'd done in the past and how I wanted to improve and make it better, but still be proud of the work, right? Because and, you know, I think that that's one that's like just healthy living, right? Just be proud of what you like. If you're going to do something, do it well and be proud of it, right? That's number one. But number two, it's just, it's good. <laughs> it's good strategy, man. Like I know for me, I'm most excited about work that the creators are excited about, you know, because if somebody's, if somebody made something and they're not excited about it, how can they possibly expect me to be excited about it? Um. So yeah, that's why I shill so aggressively online. Because <laughs> I am, because I am, because I'm, I'm stoked about the work, man. I mean, and like, it was a ton of time calling all those retailers and doing all that stuff. It was, it was grueling in terms of the amount of man hours. And it was a limited amount of time that I had in order to call as many as I could to get their orders in. And it was a lot of work. Um, but I really, I really was happy to do it um, because it's work that I, the No One Left to Fight is a comic that I love and I believe in. And I did the same thing for comic book story, professional wrestling. I called around and told people. Um, and it's the same thing, man. It's work that I love. It's work that I believe in. And it's work that I want to get in people's hands. Cause that's why I do it. You know, like I, um, again, there's like this, this idea of like the, I think it's all tied up with this idea of like the tortured creator and the tortured artist. And, you know, they're self-deprecating and they're not, 
you know, they run down their own work and they're kind of like embarrassed about promoting it. Um, and also they see cre the act of creation as kind of like an arduous thing. It's like, it's not something that they choose to do. It's like a calling and they must do it. And they, you know, it's like, it's a bodily function. They just have to endure and go along with. And man, I don't see it like that at all. Um, it's a joy. It's a joy. Like to be able to make comic books. Are you kidding me? It's my favorite shit. It, it's, it's what I've always wanted to be doing. And I'm thrilled to be doing it, man. And I, I think that the act of creation is best, even if you're creating something sad or melancholy, because there's there's some real sadness in No One Left to Fight. But the act of creating it is a joy for me of building out this world and voicing these characters and seeing something so beautiful come into the world. And I don't know, man. Did you see um uh did you see Beach Bum? No. What is that? It's like the Harmony Corinne movie, um, the most recent Harmony Corinne movie with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, okay. I saw the trailer. I haven't seen it. It's wonderful. I loved it. It was my favorite movie of, I don't know, was that this year, last year, whatever, whatever year it came out. That's my favorite. Uh, the, um, because it's about this guy. I mean, it's a Harmony Crew movie. So it's like kind of sleazy and dirty and great. And it's Matthew McConaughey playing like an exaggerated Matthew McConaughey. But to my mind, that movie was all about creating from a place of joy and creating from a place of happiness. And that's what that main character did. He was a poet. Um, he's like this dirt bag, like, florida keys um poet who just like wrote these like this raunchy poetry and like just like kind of like let himself go to pot or go to seed and like um but he he was joyful and everything he did was an expression of the joy of creating and i think that that's i don't know i think that that's some real like that's some real life lesson shit right there <laughs> man growing up for many kids becoming a comic book writer is like the moonshot it's the dream job right for me too so you kind of already touched upon it with the editor thing, but give us your origin story. How did you become a professional comic book writer? And did you always know that that's where you wanted to be? No. I mean, I always loved comics growing up. My introduction to comic, like my first in with comics was actually comic strips. And I think that that still informs a lot of my pacing um, in terms of how I break down beats and... Um, how many jokes there are and stuff. Cause there's a lot of jokes in no one left to fight too, right? A lot of gags, a lot of visual gags. Um, I grew up adoring newspaper strips and going to Walden books at the mall and like pulling out the big collections of any newspaper strip that they had. Um, that was kind of my hit. And I, I liked superhero comics, but I didn't live close to a comic book shop and I didn't often get to one. Um, my, my cousins had a ton of comics and like their dad was a collector and they just had, long boxes upon long boxes and i'd go over there and i'd read stuff um but yeah man for me it was newspaper strips originally and i grew up you know like most kids like wanting to do a dozen different things and it was you know it was an archaeologist for a while because i was really big into dinosaurs and then um astronaut and then i realized i'd have to go into the military and i didn't want to do that <laughs> right to be an astronaut <laughs> like i don't know i was like i was like 10 and i was like it wasn't like a political based thing at all it was just like oh i don't want to how many years in the air force do we have to no thank you i don't want to do that so he threw that out the window um and yeah man like i went to college fully expecting that i was going to go into academia no wonder you sound like a professor <laughs> yeah man i uh i wanted to go i wanted to do continental philosophy specifically um you know, like I was a Plato guy. Um, I was uh, uh, an Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius guy. Like I liked, liked a lot of classic philosophy. I liked a lot of like European, like 
Nietzsche and Hegel and we're analytical philosophers. So you have to get out now. Well, so that's the thing. <laughs> it's really funny that you say that, man. So like I got to NYU and I was like, I was like, all right, I'm ready to just dive into all this continental European philosophy. And like, oh yeah, we don't do that anymore. That's not that's not really what we do here no. or anywhere. Nobody does this. Like, what are you what are you thinking? Uh, so I don't know. I felt. There's like a larger thing, but like I really just feel like country mouse because I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I moved up to New York. Like, all right, y'all, I'm ready to <laughs> read all that Nietzsche or whatever, you know? Because that's how I talked back then. And um, yeah, and all my professors were like, oh yeah, well, sucks for you. We don't do that stuff. And I was like, well, shit. And I kind of scrambled, man. And I was like, well, what the fuck am I going to study? Um, I wanted to do classics for a while. I was like, that's close, right? Um, but like I had by second semester freshman year, I had missed like the train, like, cause you have to be on a track to do these things. I would have to do another year. And I learned like everything I looked at, I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll do, um, cause I was, um, I was a math kid too. I like, I like math. And I, um, I was like, well, maybe I'll do computer science. That's like a reasonable thing or like engineering and stuff too late. I would need to do like another year and I didn't have time or money for it. Um, and so I ended up doing, um, this like wacky thing that was like, they called it like an intro to like cognitive science, right? Because they called it language and mind and it was philosophy, but like specifically philosophy of language and philosophy of mind classes and then linguistics and then psychology. So like, but like cognition type stuff, right? So it was a joint major. Was it like theory of mind stuff? Yeah, there was a lot of that in it. Yeah, but there's also a lot of like clinical psychology, like cognition oh. stuff. And then there's also a lot of like formal logic and that was my favorite of it, right? Um, and... You know, and there's also, you know, studying of linguistics and language and, you know, reading. It's funny, like, uh, the first Chomsky I ever read was linguistics because that's where that guy's background is, right? Everybody knows him as, like, a social critic, but I came to Chomsky through linguistics. Um, but, yeah, I – so that's what I was doing. I still kind of thought maybe I would become a professor of some kind. Like, I would just kind of <laughs> do that. And then I started meeting professors, and I was like, oh, these motherfuckers are miserable. <laughs> This sucks. Like these guys' lives, they just, and it, like, you know, and like just what they were, I remember thinking like, I'm sure they aren't telling us, their students, everything that's frustrating them, right? Like we're only getting like the tip of the iceberg. Think of how miserable these motherfuckers are trying to get tenure. And like, I don't know. I remember like, I had a professor that like, I think he was like an adjunct, but like he would tell me about like how he'd have to go play squash with different professors in the department and how some of them were really aggressive and mean. And you kind of just had to let these guys beat you up because you didn't want to beat, you didn't want to piss, you didn't want to like hit them back. Like they would like take liberties with you on like the squash court or whatever. Uh, and I was like, I don't know, it just sounds like my nightmare of like having to let this old man beat me up while playing a game for my career. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> why so I realized I was like, man, I do not want to be a be in academics and i was kind of scrambling again and i had at around that time i had you know when i moved to new york it was like an embarrassment of riches in terms of comic book shops you know in richmond in suburban richmond virginia not only were there not a lot of comic book shops but you had to drive to them you know and so like for most of my growing up i did not have a way to get to these things and then once i did you know girls and like there were like there were like other things that i was interested in uh but once i got to college and there's just comic book shops everywhere it was really easy for me to fall down the rabbit hole and i did um of comics and i read all kinds of stuff um just for the first time it was so readily available to me um and i realized while reading i was like this is a thing that not only do i want to do do i want to make these things um and like it appealed to me too because like 
writing a novel always seemed like such an insurmountable task that, you know, like writing a 300 page novel that holds together and it's just you by yourself. That just, it seemed overwhelming to me um, as a kid. And so I never tried to do that. Um, writing television and film. Are y'all from out here originally? I lived in LA most of my life. Okay. So, yeah. so it's different out here. Cause people, cause you know, people who like their parents are EPs on this show or like whatever, you know, like, so like, there is a sense that like people actually do these jobs and stuff. And especially in now 2019, the stuff is much more transparent, but like as a kid growing up in the nineties, like I just never, it never even occurred to me that there are people who write movies or who write television or work on television like that. So that wasn't even an option. Like I didn't even, it was unfathomable to me. But then when I started seeing comics, I was like, well, this is a thing I could do, man. And just as importantly, it's a thing where you have so much freedom, right? Um, and because as I got older, I started to learn about film and television and I learned about like all of the different stakeholders and all of the different fucking bosses you have and all the producers and the investors and the financers and all the stuff that like you're beholden to these people. Whereas, you know, no one left to fight is a perfect example. It's me and Fico. Me and Fico are the creators. Um, it's ours. We own it. Um, our editor will give us notes. Um, and if we disagree with them, we push back and we don't do them because <laughs> it's ours. We own it. And that is unheard of that's ridiculous that doesn't exist you know outside of like professional wrestling where this is a fascinating thing about wrestling where like vince mcmahon has just like x amount of hours on cable television each week and he does whatever the fuck he wants like that doesn't exist anywhere else even if you are a showrunner you've got bosses and they've got requirements in terms of what you do and the actors you use and how much you spend on special effects and how much the actors cost and the writing rooms and who's on it and stuff like that the amount of freedom we have in comics is unprecedented it's ridiculous and that's one of the things that really appealed to me about it so um i fell in love with comics man and i um i remembered how much i loved it growing up and i immediately started making moves to figure out how to get in comics and this was um back in the early 2000s early to mid 2000s and again things weren't as transparent as they are now. Now you can just get, you can go on Twitter, you can get like social media following and you can like find all these scripts, like people's published scripts, they're everywhere. And like, you just know, you can find editors on Twitter and reach out to them. None of that existed in the early 2000s. <laughs> that wasn't an option. Um, and so I went to Marvel's website, I went to Marvel and DC's website looking for internship information and I couldn't find anything on DC's. And so I was like, well, Marvel it is. And I love both, you know? Um, and I... There's an email address that I emailed about internships and it bounced back. <laughs> and uh, and so I started calling. I started like, I'm like fighting my way through like Marvel's like labyrinthine um, phone system, right? Like the touchtone phone system. And eventually I found a way to get to the human resources department. And I didn't know at the time that it was like the VP of human resources. It was like the only human resources person they had working at Marvel at the time. And I found a way to reliably get to her. And I started calling her every fucking day. Oh, shit. Yeah, man. Just bugging her. Maybe not every day, but like at least once a week, you know, for weeks on end, um, bugging this woman, asking about their internship program. And I want to do an internship next semester. And um, how do I do it? And where do I apply? And where's I got my resume. Where can, where can I send it? And it reminds me of like... Um, you and Fight Club when they all have to like go stand on the porch for like three days before they get admitted to Project Mayhem. <laughs> like that's what it felt like to me. Just like, just enduring, just keep it at it. And eventually, like, I guess she just got tired of dealing with me and she sent my shit down to um, Tom Brevoort's office. Um, he's he's like an executive editor, VP something now, but like at the time he's a senior editor and they sent it down to him and they had me in for an interview and I showed up wearing like a shirt and tie and they all made fun of me. 
uh, <laughs> showed up so dressed up. Uh, and yeah, man, they just had me in the office. The interview was basically just to make sure I wasn't some kind of like crazy fanboy, like unhinged maniac. Uh, and they're like, and they like got to look at me. And they're like, yeah, you're fine. We'll see you Monday. Uh, and I started interning there, man. And then the internship led to a part-time job while I was still in college. I was editorial assistant. And so I was going to college at NYU and then working part-time at Marvel. Um, and then when I graduated, um, I lucked out that a position opened up in Brevoort's office and I moved into there. So let's say I'm a high school kid. I'm an aspiring comic book writer. How would I break into the industry? Is your path the best way? Or- Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not now, man. Because especially for artists, it seems more clear cut, but for somebody who wants to write, it seems like more nebulous. With artists, it's real. It's easier. You just need to be a really good artist. Yeah. Because people can see. You yeah. put your art online and people say, oh, look, this is very good. We should hire him to do a comic book. Uh, Writing is a lot tougher because nobody wants to read your scripts. Even now, even like at my level, like I have a published graphic novel from Penguin Random House and I have this hit comic from Dark Horse. Um, nobody wants to read my scripts. Reading scripts sucks. Scripts are... Scripts are not, you know, and I know there are people who really like reading screenplays and stuff like that, but I've never been able to wrap my brain around those fucking weirdos because that's not like, I don't know. It's like staring at blueprints for a house. Like maybe it's interesting if it's like this magnificent house that's already been built and you want to see how it got put together. Maybe that's interesting, but nobody wants to read a, like scripts from an undrawn comic. Um, so I think that, you know, it is harder for writers for sure. Um, there's like I, I would not recommend my path because all of like these old barriers I described they've been torn down and you you can get noticed in other ways and I think that one of the easiest ways you know <laughs> I say easiest ways but it's not easy is just get noticed for something else man you know like if if you want to write co- and this is like a an obnoxious paradox but it's like well you know, one of the easiest ways to get hired to write comics is to have written a novel or a film <laughs> or a television show. And that shit ain't easy either. Um, so yeah, man, it, there are, there's like an old saying about comics that, and it's probably something people say in other mediums too, but like, you know, every, like everybody has to make their own door or window into comics. And then like, as soon as, you, as soon as that person gets in, like, magic elves come and like hammer it shut so like somebody else has to like you the next person has to figure out their own way you know and it's not like it's not a vindictive thing right it's not people locking the door behind them but it's just everybody comes in from a different way because it is such a it's a neat thing man and it's it's a design there's a reason why there's so many people who make a lot more money doing films and television and why they come and do comics it's because of the freedom that i just described you know the ability to just do it and not have to worry about what um, studio heads have to say about it, you know, and you you can just get your work out there in a more pure form. And so there's a lot of competition and there's also, you know, comics is unique in that I think a higher percentage of people who read comics want to make comics than other mediums, you know, like most people who watch television don't daydream about getting into a writer's room. Plenty of them do, but not at the percentages that comic book readers imagine themselves becoming writers and i think that a lot of it's tied up with in america this tradition of you know fans of especially these characters right like these franchised like ip characters from marvel and dc uh people grow up loving these characters and then they kind of like come up through like the fan press or fanzines and stuff like that. And then they move into jobs where they actually get to make it and so there is this idea where it's like this obtainable progression that you can do but because everybody thinks it 
it is it becomes it's a really crowded road man <laughs> so how do you write comic books is it like a screenplay format or does it have its own format or is it more like you draw your own doodles and you kind of try to make it more like a storyboard so um there are there isn't one way to write it's not like screenplay where there is like the proper way to write a screenplay where everybody expects your screenplay to yeah. be formatted like that um and so there are a lot of different ways to do it um some people use what is it is it final draft pro yeah. is that the name of it some people use that i don't like that it, even when i was an editor i hated it because it was again this is like a bugaboo of mine it was you, you use the right tool for the job <laughs> that's made to write a screenplay and it's designed for a screenplay where like you know in a screenplay it's mostly dialogue you know you set you say where things are but you're not describing the flowers that are on the table in the dining room you know in a comic you might you know the writer of a comic book you you're like the screenwriter but you're also kind of the director right um you share that job with the artist right um you also share the job of cinematographer with the artist and the colorist as well you know um, so you're responsible for a lot more and what most comic book scripts have in common um even ones that use final draft pro which i think is it works at cross purposes to what a conflict is supposed to accomplish. Um, what they have in common is they say page one, panel one, here's what's in it. Here's what the dialogue is. Panel two, here's what in it. Here's what's in it. Here's what the copy is, right? Here's what the sound effects are. Here's what the captions are. Um, it goes beat by beat, you know? And so it's much more granular than a screenplay or a teleplay would be. Um, I think that they're, they're you do, as a writer, you do have a lot more control than you would writing a screenplay or teleplay where you hand it off to a director and they kind of just use it as a guy, like a roadmap, you know? Um, and different work, you know, and like there are plenty of times when like Fico will be like, hey, I'm going to add a panel here or I'm going to take this away or what do you think about me changing this? And 99.9% .9 of the time I say, great, do it, make it work, make it better. <laughs> you know, like, like that's, that's kind of always my thing is like, I don't, like, I don't want, I, I don't, it's not as important to me that like the original version of what I came up with C print as it is just the best version of it C print. So, yeah. So it sounds like there's no one uniform format so long as it hits the things that you're supposed to hit, which is like panel and beat by beat. And if the artist and all the other creators involved in the book can understand it, then it exactly. works. Yeah. It's it. There are, I think there are editors that like scripts to be in certain formats but i think they're kind of few and far between just because everybody has their own way of doing it um but it's basically the same shit you know it's just a question of like well do you center the the panel number or do you put it left justified or you know it's stuff like that it makes sense then why creators from other mediums they love the freedom of comic books because there's so much more leeway even in the formatting of how you write your story 100 percent, yeah so how did you end up writing a graphic novel about pro wrestling so my editor at 10 Speed, his name is Patrick Barb. He's amazing. He, uh, he was a fan of my wrestling podcast. He's a straight shoot listener. Uh, and he's a, big he's a big wrestling head. And he was working at 10 Speed. And they had this line, the comic book story of blank. And the first one was beer. It's really cool. Uh, and they'd done, they've since done video games and basketball and no, wait, baseball, definitely baseball. Yeah, they've done a few other ones too, right? Uh, and Patrick's a big wrestling Mark, man, he's super into it. He listened to my wrestling show weekly and I was writing G.I. Joe at the time. And they, you know, he'd finally convinced the editorial staff there that we need to do one of these comic book story of books. And they're not, they're nonfiction, right? I should clarify that, right? So it's 
it always a uh, <laughs> linguistics nerd. Uh, I hate calling it a graphic novel because novel means fiction, but this oh. is nonfiction. So it's a nonfiction graphic novel, which makes me like, I don't know. It makes, it makes me recoil just saying it. And I feel like I need to explain it so people don't think that I'm a moron by calling, by saying a nonfiction novel, right? Because it's a contradiction in terms. But yeah, anyways, it's a nonfiction graphic novel. Uh, and he knew they wanted to do a history of professional wrestling. And he had the bright idea of why not reach out to the guy who does the popular wrestling podcast, who is also a comic book writer. Um, and he emailed me out of the blue and said, you know, I'm a fan of your work and I listen to your podcast. And uh, I would was wondering if you'd want to, do this thing and i said of course i would and it's funny because like it was it was not a project i would have ever pitched right um it was not something i ever sat around thinking about you know what i'd like to do a history of wrestling as a comic book <laughs> just because like, i don't know it sounded like a lot of work um but he asked me and the first thing that went through my mind was if someone else did this i would be furious i would be <laughs> i would be and so like all great creative decisions it was one made out of spite uh, and and resentment, but no, I uh, yeah, like I, I just knew I was like you know I'm the one to do this. I'm and this, that sounds arrogant, but it's true. I you know I had worked at WWE, I worked at WWE Games, I interviewed all these wrestlers, I had my own wrestling podcast, I talked about wrestling um, for at least ninety minutes a week live, uh, you know, live to tape, uh, no edits or anything with professional wrestlers. I'd learned a ton, and I thought that I, you know, and as a fan, I'd read all these wrestling books and stuff, so I'd done most of the research already. I knew. You know, most importantly, I knew where to find, I knew what I didn't know and I knew where to find it, you know, like I didn't have to start from scratch on anything. Um, so yeah, so I said, of course, let's go. Um, and it's funny, man, like I, I was writing G.I. Joe at the time. And so I had a real keen idea of how long it took me to write 20 page chunks. Cause that's how long each issue of G.I. Joe was. And so I knew how long that took me to do. And I was like, yeah, you know, I can, I was like, if I need to, I can knock out a 20 page issue in a day if I want. I typically didn't. I like to, personally, I like to write five pages a day and I write five pages. And the next day I edit that five pages and I write another five pages. And I like to be able to like sleep on things and ruminate it and change and stuff. It's so, like, I plotted out how long it was going to take me to write this 170 page graphic novel. Um, and I, you know, I did an outline that they approved, right? Like, like kind of like chapter by chapter, like here's what each chapter is going to cover. And then for my purposes, I didn't share this with them just because this was part of my planning documents, I did page breakdowns. I said, here's what goes on every single one of these 170 pages. And some of them were like, had kind of like question marks. I was like, I need to look some of this stuff up and track down some more details and things like that. But it was a really specific roadmap that I laid out because I had to, because there was just so much information that we had to get into this thing. And so I had this document that was, you know, page by page, 170 of these things. Like, here's what's going on in each one, you know, the visuals, like the content, what we're covering. And I sat down to write it. And I got like five pages into it. And I go, and I looked at the time. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> this is, is going to take way longer than I expected. I, I was I was wholly unprepared for how much work it was writing nonfiction, A, and B, writing. So like not just writing nonfiction, but writing something that's designed to work almost like a primer or a textbook, you know? Because yeah. like, you know, if you're doing a nonfiction biography of somebody you're still telling a story and you're telling this narrative and like it's you know it's beat by beat it's more like a regular type fiction comic what we were doing was something else entirely in that it was you know it's heavily narrated it's a lot of captions it's a lot of facts and there was just as i mentioned before there was stuff that had to get included right it just had to it had to fit in and so it was just a 
I had to figure out how to cram all this stuff in there so that it is a complete work and then it covers everything while also being a story, while also exploring these like thesis statements that I had, while also being visual, right? So there were times when I would like, I would go through and I would normally when I write a comic book page and to your point earlier, you're asking about like drawing like sketches and stuff. And I do that a lot of times. I do thumbnails. Um, I draw thumbnails before I write the script just to think about how the page, A, to make sure everything can fit on the page. That's the thing a lot of, a lot of comp, if I learned this as an editor, a lot of comic writers will send in pages that are just impossible to draw. Um, you know, they'll be like, okay, so it's nine panels on this page. And the first one, that's the biggest one on the page. And here's the thing, motherfucker, if there are nine panels on the page, none of them are the biggest on the page. Cause it's too many. It's too many, <laughs> it's too many fucking panels. Right. And you know, there's just a lot of like, kind of like rookie errors that people make in terms of not writing visually. Um, and so I try to write visually and I do that by doing thumbnails first, a lot of the times. And I'm just trying to be a visual thinker um, with, and that works when I'm writing something like no one left to fight, right? Cause it's about these kind of broader visual things. And I build, I typically build the dialogue around the visuals. Um, sometimes there's, and, you know, there's back and forth, right? But like, and sometimes I'll build a specific dialogue that I need to, but with complex or professional wrestling, it was kind of the opposite because I knew that like on this page about the four pillars of all Japan pro wrestling, I needed to get this list of information out, this this content needs to be on this page because there's nowhere else it can fit. And it's crucial to the history of professional wrestling. And so I knew I had to get that in there. And so I would break it down by panel and I would put like, I would write the captions basically, right? Like the necessary stuff. And I would jot down ideas of like what the visuals could be. And most pages I would end up, you know, having done that, then having to go back and figure out, okay, well, what the fuck does this panel look like? Right. Cause it can't just be text, right? It can't just be text on text on text. There have to be, I need to like, and that's another thing about like how I think about writing comics and especially with a guy like Chris Moreno, who um, was my co-creator on comic book story, professional wrestling or Fico Osio on no one left to fight. Um, I see my job as a comic book writer to just lob softballs over the plate. Right? My job is to set these guys up to set the next guy up for success, right? The next guy in line, you know? And um, so it was about trying to play to that guy's strengths and finding ways to, communicate the stuff I need to do while also playing to his strengths, while also keeping it visual, while also not cramming it with too many panels. It was, <laughs> it was, it was extremely difficult. It was wildly, it was way more difficult than anything I'd ever written before. Um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, but people ask me, they're like, Oh, you know, you should come, you want to come, you should come back and do another one. And like do the history of stuff since it came out. Cause a lot's changed, you know, yeah. AEW is a thing now and all. And I'm always like, yeah, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> um, I need a break for a while uh, before I go back and do anything like that again because it was it was rough, man. I'm real proud of it, though. I mean, like, and yeah. it's, I'm really happy with. I think we did. I think we did the damn thing, but it was an an exorbitant amount of work. I've read a shitload of books on pro wrestling, and this was probably the most informative one. Thanks, man. That's really that's really amazing to hear, especially because of the limitations of the comic book format. You know, like the fact of the matter is, like a comic book is never going to have as much raw information and data as a prose book will. It just simply cannot, you know, like um, you have to make concessions, but we're really fortunate that, you know, we were doing this for wrestling too, because wrestling is so visual and there's a lot about wrestling that you need to see to understand, you know? Um, and I know, cause I've read all these, these autobiographies, but like, you know, if you're reading Ric Flair's autobiography, it's great. You should, <laughs> if you haven't already, you should. It's excellent, right? To be the man. Um, but if you're reading that thing, there's a lot you miss if you don't know what Ric Flair looks like. 
if you don't if you don't get the majesty of the nature boy coming out in his big sequined robe with his like huge white hair like like if you don't see that you don't understand what it's really about and like what's going on if you don't under, if you don't see these moves and see the violence and the gore sometimes and like like that stuff's crucial to wrestling and that's why like a lot of wrestling biographies they've got the section in the middle with all the photographs because you need it you you need to understand that like it is a it's a visual medium you know like comics so um i think that we were fortunate in that regard and it was easier than it would have been other you know because we were able to convey stuff we were able to convey stuff in the graphic novel that people wouldn't in a um a prose work a prose history you mentioned earlier about how you didn't have to start from scratch when it came to information but there was a lot of research and history behind it how difficult was it to get that kind of resource and that amount of research into it um so i mean it was time consuming but it wasn't like like i didn't have to go to the library of congress or anything right like fortunately like wrestling fans are nuts and love keeping track of stuff and there are you know there are databases online like free databases online of like you can pick like a wrestler from like the 70s or 80s and you can just go see every wrestling match they had for you know because this was during the territory days right and they would it's not like WWE where they wrestle like you know twice on tv a week and then like some house shows and stuff these guys were traveling around wrestling in like small auditoriums and stuff and nothing was recorded or videotaped or anything but you can still find the match results you can still find who these guys were facing every night you can look up rick flair like just what that guy was doing every night in the 70s and 80s uh, not everything he was doing yeah, rick flair. <laughs> uh but um he has a lot of sex uh the um he's a, he's a sexual person uh but Certainly who he was facing, right? <laughs> Certainly who he was wrestling, at least. So, like, all that stuff is readily available. Um, but you have to go dig through it. You have to find it. And, um, you know, likewise, a lot of, like, so, like seemingly every wrestler has an autobiography, right? Um, some of them have, like, Chris Jericho has, like, three or four. And I've read all of them because I'm a crazy person. Um, but, like, so all that stuff is out there. The difficult, you know, and even like older stuff too, you can find like newspaper articles about, you know, um, Ed Strangler Lewis. And oh, really? Like that. Yeah, sure. Um, dude, one of the neatest things I found um, was a audio recording on YouTube of the radio call because it, it was not on TV, right? It wasn't something they filmed for television, but the radio call of when Bruno Sammartino beat Nature Boy Buddy Rogers for the WWF title. You can listen to you can listen to the call on the radio and it's awesome. Like like on on YouTube, it's really rad. But uh, yeah, so like all that stuff is there. Um, the difficulty came not not in finding it so much, but in curating it and figuring out you know. And the name of the book is the comic book story of professional wrestling, and I took that real serious because I a real pet peeve of mine is I feel like I'm just describing all the things I hate about comics, but that, uh, but <laughs> you're honestly, a connoisseur. Well, well, that's the thing, man. Like I. I want to do the best comics. And so to do that, I think about what I don't like about comics and how to avoid it and how not to do that. And especially coming into something like the comic book story of professional wrestling, which was new for me, it was right nonfiction. It was something I never really thought about doing before. So I read a lot of nonfiction comics and I disliked the vast majority of them because most of them read not like stories, but like anecdotes to me. And what I mean by that is that instead of being a story with an arc, right, with um, thematic weight, with um, <laughs> with all the, you know, with a beginning, a middle and an end, with all the things that we expect from an actual story, they were just lists of things that happened. 
it was just it was just anecdote and you could maybe kind of like impose some meaning on that as a reader but i didn't i typically don't think in a lot of examples of nonfiction comics i don't think enough work is done by the creators to impose a story framework upon the nonfiction things that happened. And now that doesn't mean that you need, you make things up or that you are misleading or, or anything, but I mean like any documentary filmmaker can tell you this, that you have to have a story. You can't just film a bunch of shit and then edit it together and, and, and cross your fingers and hope it holds water. You have to come into these things with a thesis statement and with an idea and, and, um, an idea of like how you're going to curate this thing and put everything together. And that changes as you're, it certainly changed with the complex story of professional wrestling. And I discovered new things and I adjusted and tweaked and stuff like that. But you have to have that overarching thrust to a narrative. Um, and that was the toughest thing for me, you know, um, figuring out how to get all this content in there. Cause again, there's just certain things you, we had to cover in order for it to be complete, but how did, organize this information in a way that it feels like a cohesive narrative, not just me reading a Wikipedia entry to you. And I think that that's what a lot of nonfiction work ends up reading like personally. Yeah. They kind of feel like a Wikipedia entry and they hired an illustrator, not a comic book person. And it almost seems like a children's picture book or something rather than like an actual comic book style, like longer length piece of work. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and to your point about like illustration, you know, like I think that maybe people listening are like, well, yeah, isn't aren't isn't that what comics are? It's just like illustrated stories, and it's not. I mean, and what what's different about it is an illustrated story. Like, if you're thinking about like a children's picture book or like I don't know, like uh, <laughs> my personal favorite, Alice in Wonderland, right? It's this wonderfully illustrated, like the Lewis Tennille or what's Tennille? What's that his name? The guy who did the illustrations on that. I don't know, look it up. Uh, the uh, <laughs> or like or like Ralph Steadman on like um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or something like that, right? These are wonderfully illustrated books, and they're they're great. And the the artwork, um, the artwork riffs off of the text typically, right? And that's and that's what an illustrated book is. Comic goes both ways, though, yeah. right? There needs to be a there needs to be communication between the text and the art and back and forth. They need to inform each other and they need to work with each other to accomplish a goal, right? If you read, you can read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas without the Stedman illustration. Oh, sorry, uh, making all these weird noises over here. Uh, the um, you can read it without the Stedman illustrations and it still works. It's still a great novel. I mean, you're not you don't miss out on any meaning. You miss out on seeing these great illustrations, but that's it. With a comic. A, a good comic, the art is crucial. The art is part of it. And I was really fortunate to work with Chris Moreno on this, my pal um, and co-creator on Complex Story of Professional Wrestling, because he, unlike me, is a huge fan of nonfiction comics. Like he loves this kind of stuff. Like the, you know, um, like the big, they used to be really popular in the nineties, like these like big massive like tomes of like, it's like the big book of weirdos, or the big book of freaks or the big book of criminals or like stuff like that. And like, he really dug that stuff. And um, he had a lot of really smart ideas about how to display information visually, um, that I would, without him, I would not have been able to do. Um, and so, yeah, I was really fortunate in that regard, man. I think it's a take credit for Chris Moreno's brilliance, <laughs> which is why I'm putting him over here on your podcast. In the book, you called it the one true sport. Yeah. Why did you call it that? Uh, it's something we, that I had started calling it on my podcast straight shoot and, um, you know, we talk about it like that was one of the thesis statements, right? Is that like professional wrestling is the one true sport, um, even though it's not a sport. And that's and that's why it's 
that's why it's the one true sport, right? Which sounds like a wacky nonsense. I don't know. It sounds like a Lewis, a Lewis Carroll, um, <laughs> like, do another Alice in Wonderland reference, right? It sounds like something the Mad Hatter would yell at you. Um, but I'll, I'll blow it out, man. Like, so like the idea is that what we like about sport, about watching sport are the stories that arise from it, right? Um, playing sport is something different, right? Like, but what we as what we like from spectator sports is we like watching something and a narrative arises um sometimes sometimes it doesn't right and that's the key um if you're watching a baseball game sometimes a really really great narrative arises out of it um sometimes you need to know a ton about baseball and the teams and the clubs and where people used to play and like and you just need to have this wealth of information to fully understand it um but then once you do there's a story there wrestling always has a story there because that's how it's designed right wrestling is built in order to hit these dramatic beats and get a reaction out of you it's built to do the thing that sport does accidentally or not or incidentally right not accidentally but incidentally sometimes and sometimes not and what's more is wrestling is designed that you don't need to know anything else sometimes your appreciation of wrestling is heightened by having the context and knowing stuff but typically Everything you need to know is being yelled at you on commentary or is just demonstrated by the wrestlers in the ring. A good wrestling match doesn't even need commentary, right? You can be there live and fully appreciate because this guy comes out and he's arrogant and rude to the crowd um, and, you know, or he's just ugly and we don't like him. And then this other guy comes out and he's super handsome and the ki- and he's spending time with kids and taking photos. That's all you need to know. This guy's the good guy. That guy's the bad guy. The bad guy cheats. The good guy doesn't. And you're off the races, you know? Um, so wrestling accomplishes habitually every single match that which only the best legitimate sports competitions accomplish which is why we call it the one true sport that thesis statement whether you actually said it in the book or not is something i picked up on and that's what made it so unique for me and in thinking about it and as somebody who's an mma fan the book was also about how intertwined pro wrestling and MMA is, and it's really the history of both, because it was the same thing. It was one thing at one point. And in thinking about it and thinking about the thesis that you presented, I could see it becoming the same thing once again. And in Japan, it has done that before. In the US, it seems like it's kind of going there seems again. Seems like, I don't, did you miss those CM Punk fights? <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. Like, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe we're getting into hot take territory, but I think, man, as soon as, as soon as a sport begins to make decisions on who faces whom based on things other than rankings and who they've previously beat, it's not legitimate anymore. It's pro wrestling. It's a work. I mean, to some degree or another, right? Like, I'm not saying like the actual UFC fights are works. Maybe they, I don't know enough about it to make a call on that. But I do know that once you start making matches based on what people want to see rather than solely based on merit and like who actually is the best fighters and and ranking and like however you do your rankings once you start making decisions based on that it is no longer a legitimate sport it's something else it's it's inching closer to professional wrestling for sure whether it gets there or not fully it seems like all forms of spectator entertainment let's say wants to eventually become theater it's like that saying that all rivers want to meet the ocean whether they do or not they kind of want to head there and it seems the same thing with stuff like this well i think i mean i think that's a very noble way to put it i think all (laughs) i think the real way to put this is and this is another one of my big thesis statements right about wrestling um but like i think personally i think the more accurate way to put it is all of these forms of sport want to make money and you make money by giving people matches they want to see right uh 
that's I mean, and that, that's the you know that's the big complaint people have about the Super Bowl seemingly, and I don't follow football at all, but people, every year people complain about like, oh, nobody cares about this matchup, and nobody cares about these two teams. It's like, well, yeah, that's because they're trying to at least have like the illusion of like some kind of legitimacy here, right? You know, like um, it's people want to see the exciting matches, they want the rivalries, they want all the stuff that wrestling gives them as a matter of course, and so yeah, you're right, people like legitimate sports always do kind of inch towards that stuff but i don't think it's i don't think it's because of like a love of entertainment or theater i think it's just because it's a love of filthy filthy lucre of like packing these stadiums full of people who are rabid fans of things as a pro wrestling fan though what draws us to pro wrestling it's a lot of different things um i mean so i can really speak for my i can only really speak for myself because especially now because wrestling fandom has evolved and changed a lot in like the past, I don't know, like six years. Um, people started looking at wrestling more like they look at television or novels or movies and comics and things like that. Um, and starting to expect the same things out of them. Um, and I think that that is a mistake. I think that that is, um, again, it comes down to appreciating the form and its connection to function and what that form does best right wrestling is not designed to give you character arcs wrestling is not designed to give you acts of a story i mean think about wrestling like it, wrestling is a perpetual second act it doesn't end it goes on forever week after week you know the goal of wrestling isn't to give you a satisfying conclusion it's not to give you a hole that you can return to and enjoy it's not to be the wire or whatever you know uh the goal of wrestling is to get you to come back next week the goal of wrestling is to get you to buy the pay-per-view, to buy the t-shirt, to go to the show, to, to cheer. It, it doesn't matter. Consistency, um, character arcs, character development, dialogue, none of the stuff that we typically use as metrics to judge other types of stories, none of these rightfully apply to wrestling. These things can be good and they can happen in wrestling, but it's not the goal of wrestling. And so to expect these things of wrestling is to set yourself up for disappointment, in my opinion. So whenever people start doing their like, like talking about an episode of Monday Night Raw, like it was like an HBO prestige series. I kind of tune out um, because I, I think that's, um, oh, I, I just don't think that, I just don't, don't think that that's the metric. Like that's, Roger Ebert used to talk about how you have to grade movies based on what they're trying to accomplish, right? Which is why he could give like, I think like he famously gave like devils, like Rob Zombie's Devil's Rejects, like two thumbs up and then like <laughs> gave like some really savage review to some like really smart Oscar bait movie that year. And he was explaining why he's like, because R Rob Zombie's Devil's Rejects set out to accomplish certain things and it did it perfectly, right? You have to grade based on what people, what art is trying to accomplish. Um, and so for me, what wrestling does better than anything else. And when wrestling is good, um, it is better than anything else, Right. I think that wrestling, wrestling is like, and this is one of the big thesis statements of the book too. Wrestling is a con. Wrestling is not a story. It's a con or a magic trick. If you want to be a little bit nicer about it, we talked, I was talking about magic stuff earlier, but I think a con is a more accurate thing, especially when you talk about how wrestling evolved, right? Wrestling evolved, not from, you know, like wrestling didn't evolve from MMA. Wrestling didn't evolve from legitimate sporting competitions. Wrestling, legitimate sporting competitions existed, but that's not where wrestling came from. And they, they overlapped some for sure, but where wrestling came from is carnivals, is traveling carnivals and sideshows. And there was a troika of the, the true origin of wrestling. We talk about this in the book too. This isn't like a big secret. It's a troika of three different individuals. It's the promoter, right? Who comes into town and says, look, um, 
who here thinks they can beat Big Billy Clayton? Is like the one I made up in the book, just that sounded like the appropriate name. Uh, who who could beat Big Billy Clayton here? This big wrestler, impressive guy. Um, and then people would try and beat him, right? Farm boys locally and stuff like that. Uh, and then the third part of the troika that often gets forgotten is it's not the opponent, it's not the referee, it's the bookie. It's the guy taking bets, right? Uh, because that guy's in on it. And they organized, and this is the origin of wrestling, is they realized, well, shit, um, Big Billy Clayton's really good and he beats most everybody, but sometimes he doesn't. Um, and, you know, so, and also, so, well, first of all, Big Billy Clayton's good and he beats practically everybody, but there's no money in that. If everybody knows that Billy Clayton is just going to squash these guys. So, Billy, um, we need you to last three minutes and we'll say, you know, it will, like, on for this guy and we'll do the bet, we'll arrange the bets accordingly so that we can fleece these marks out of as much money as physically possible right and then once you do that it's just a hop skip and a jump to being like well um what if things go wrong what if somebody comes in and looks like they're going to upset billy billy needs to have like certain holds and hooks that he can use on this guy to get him into submission right or maybe there's just somebody in the back who hits him with a sap like through the, the curtain or whatever so that billy can get a pin on him um, or maybe we have a plant in the audience who comes out and beats him and up it's an upset and we take everybody's fucking money from that um that's the true origin of wrestling and that to me is what's fascinating about wrestling is the con is the trick is the trick that everybody watching wrestling and again it's like magic you have to be in on it right like the audience has it there's another like there's a like an old saying about cons that you can't con an honest john and what that means is that in order to run a confidence game on somebody the person your mark needs to think that they're running a game on you Right. So that's like why, like, if you like read about like classic confidence games and stuff like that, um, it's not just like, oh, hey, will you give me money for this thing I need? And somebody says, sure, young man. It's, hey, um, you need to present an opportunity or a, a situation where the mark thinks that they're getting one over on you. And that makes them foolish with their own money and willing to go along with this, um, this fiction that you've created around them. And I think that rest, that's how, that is how wrestling works in its purest form. And it's a sliding scale, right? Because there are a lot, a lot of times in wrestling fandom, people talk about when things became worked, right? And like when kayfabe died and stuff like that. And that's another thesis of the book is that kayfabe's always been dead, right? In 1911, people were talking about how Gotch Hackenschmidt was a work. And the second one probably was right. <laughs> in my opinion, uh, the, um, so it's always been the case. It's always been a work. And that's actually what's great about it is that they continue finding ways to suck you in, even though you know it's a work, right? And right now, the way they do it is they do it through social media. And they do it through social media-based outrage about booking decisions and whether certain wrestlers are being disrespected and whether you know so-and-so is on the card in Saudi Arabia or not and how much money this person is making and whether they're calling this person up from NXT. Like all of that stuff is now part of the work right they've been able to, and if you look at the history of wrestling and this is another thing we try to do in the book we looked at the ways that they kept on shifting and moving and being nimble like they meaning just wrestling promoters um and it's not like a it wasn't a concerted effort like a group conspiracy or anything it's just this is how it works man this is how you con people out of their money this is how you this is how you behave as a carny grifter and that's what wrestling is at its core and like i, I say that not as an insult but i say it joyously because i think there's something nakedly um it's nakedly exploitive 
in a way that in a way that film and television and books and comics try to hide and try to say no 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 this is art and this is not you know we're yes it's art as commerce but really we're trying to give you something to make you think and enjoy and feel and you know feel the like the breadth of human emotion wrestling says no we're just trying to get your money and like if it, it, if you want to think that you're being clever and you're looking at this thing this stuff in a really smart way and you're a real academic go ahead we'll work that too we'll we'll, we'll take your money as well and i think that that is amazing and i think that is um it's really cynical and it's really nasty but i think it's a I think also it's a useful rubric uh, through which to view the world. Um, and, I mean, you know, there's a lot made of like, you know, especially since 2016 of like how wrestling has become politics. Motherfucker, wrestling is or, or uh, politics has become wrestling. Motherfucker, politics has always been wrestling. Everything is wrestling. Like everything works this way to some degree or another. But wrestling is the only thing that's honest about it. And that's what I love about wrestling. And uh, you already kind of set up the context for this question, but going back to no one left to fight, what is the appeal of fighting? Like you talked about fighting mangas and your comic book is about it. So whether in comic books or movies or TV, why does fighting appeal to us? I don't think there's any better way to communicate something about a character. When all the chips are on the table, when push has literally come to shove, when you have two characters who are fighting for either their like pride or a some kind of uh award or even just or even their lives right that's when you f discover something fascinating and profound about those characters right and i think this is true of people too right that you you know like there's like old things about like you know you find out what people are when they're under pressure right and like and their their backs against their wall and what do they do and i think that you know it's your job as a storyteller to put your characters in a situation where you can learn things about them and when they they can display who they truly are and there are a lot of and th this is all storytelling right um it just so happens though that you know um i'm working in a visual medium and you know there are there are dramatic kind of emotional ways you can put people's back against the wall and like accomplish the same thing but it's a visual medium man i want to see somebody punching somebody else in the jaw i want to you know i want to see i want to see somebody picking somebody up and throwing them into a, a gas tanker and it exploding right like, like that's again it's what comics does well it, there's no special effects budget there's no um there's no there's no concern about stunt actors safety right you can do anything you want and so you know it seems to me like the perfect thing to do with comics and the perfect way to kind of explore um what makes people tick and who they are and you know with no one left to fight the goal has been to do it all to you know not to make sure that when we, we started breaking down No One Left to Fight, there were certain fight scenes that we knew we wanted to get to, and we and we built the entire series around building to those. The same way you would book a wrestling tournament, or you would book a month of pro wrestling leading up to the pay-per-view matches. Um, and everything is designed to feed into that, you know, and everything from the matches, the, the fights that lead up to that fight, um, as well as all of the emotional stuff and all the reasons people are fighting. So, um yeah, man, I think fight, I, I don't think there's any better, if you're doing visual storytelling, I don't think there's anything better than a fight. Honestly, John Wick, John Wick, John Wick is, John Wick and Beach Bum are my best <laughs> movies ever, uh, right this minute. Uh, because yeah, because of exactly that, it's just, it's fighting and it's fighting and it's fighting with um, a purpose that communicates something about the characters. So how do you fuck that up? Like, I don't personally. <laughs> 
never. I never would. Not you, but I've seen like martial arts or action, like fighting genre movies, or I've read comic books or even pro wrestling matches where I love fighting. Just give me any fight, especially me in particular. I love to watch anything combat related. But then I don't know how, but they've somehow fucked it up where I'm bored. So I'm like, how did you fuck this up for me? I'm easy. So when did they fuck it up? Here's what happens, man. I think like the biggest thing is that, you know, it's not botches. It's not, oh, this person's sloppy in the ring or like, it's none of that stuff. It's that the fights aren't about anything. Um, and the fights, and this is true in wrestling and movies and comics and all this stuff. The fights actually need to be about something beyond just two people hitting each other. And what's more and in order for that to happen the the characters need to have specific points of views and they need to have ways in which they fight i mean and this is true of a um a good mma match too right like the best mma matches are when you've got two guys who are totally different and they've got two totally different skill sets and they go about fights in different ways and they're trying to match each other right and or out outwork each other if it's just two if it's just two guys who are doing the same shit like I don't know. Maybe that can be interesting because it's like like for a little while, but not really. You know, you need to have distinct characters who the way they fight. And this is once you get start getting into fiction, you know, the way that a character fights should communicate something about their character. And I mentioned this earlier, like the heel wrestler, people sometimes complain. They're like, oh, why doesn't my favorite heel villainous wrestler why don't they ever win clean? Because they're a heel. Because they're a villain, <laughs> motherfucker. And if they started winning clean, if they started just beating people because they're great, then everybody would cheer them. And then it would it, the whole thing would break down. They have to get people to boo them. And there's a bunch of ways to do that. And you know, sometimes it's by being like a monster who comes out and squashes people. But that's dangerous because, I don't know, everybody loves a squash. It's dope watching a big, strong dude beat somebody up, right? Um, that sounds very fascist coming out of my mouth, but like, but it is, I mean, it's just, and that's that, honestly, that's like another thing that's neat about wrestling is how it's just kind of ugly and exploitive and fascist and mean. And like, I don't know. I love it, but, um, <laughs> um, fully understanding the contradiction in my politics and stuff. I, I love it. But, um, you know, the way you keep people hating this character and the way people, you get people invested in the match and wanting to see the villain beaten is they need to want to see the villain beaten and then you need to give them reasons for that. And so they cheat and they, the way they wrestle is cowardly and craven and they, they run out to the, and they like, they get to the ropes and break up pins and they avoid the good guy and they have their, their valet hit them with a spiked heel or like whatever, you know? Um, I think that that's crucial. You know, I think it's true in comics and movies too, is that, you know, John Wick needs to fight differently than that big um, basketball player that he was fighting in that. Did you see John Wick three? No. Ugh. It's the business. It's the best thing. Uh, but like, yeah, like John Wick fights differently than the other guys. He's the the than the opponents he's fighting, and that's by design. That's why that's a that's one of the reasons that's a great movie um, is because all the fights feel different, and there's a narrative to the fights. Um, and I think that that's a thing that um, is overlooked far too often. And people, instead of writing a fight with a narrative where there's a narrative flow and the characters have points of views and the way they fight communicates something about the characters people will instead just show guys punching each other until one of them punches hardest and then the fight is over. And that I think is um, an unfulfilling thing to watch. One of the examples you gave in the book was about how Gorgeous George was a template for Muhammad Ali, who is a template for anybody who trash talks in sports. What are some other examples you think that pro wrestling has given modern sports that they don't realize stems from pro wrestling. 
did promos come from that? Like MMA fighters do it, but it feels like now what ESPN and Instagram. I mean, but like, I mean, that was, you know, that was the idea of like a cutting a promo. I mean, like that's no difference than like a weigh-in press conference, right? You know, like that's, and that's where the wrestling promos kind of evolved from um, and like to promote fights coming into town and stuff like that. Um, so like, I think that that kind of had existed I mean, I'm making the arbitrary call that that (laughs) that's like a different shared ancestor. Um, I don't know, man. I think that, you know, with MMA, you can definitely see it in terms of the move towards like matchmaking as a way of getting people to buy these products. You know, Um, I think the creation of things like Ultimate Fighter is very professional wrestling um, because the fact, you know, Here's a, I, I think that I'm sure I'm positive that the people running UFC at the time that Ultimate Fire Circuit, y'all know more MMA than I do. Um, whoever was running UFC at the time when that started up, I'm sure it came out of a conversation of like, listen, we need we need to make more money, and how do we do that? We need we need to make more content, but there's only so many fucking fights we have because these guys need so many months off in between fights, and we don't want to burn through our big fights anyways. We need to find a way to make additional content, and with wrestling, that stuff's easy because you just like these guys wrestle like four or five nights a week, and you can just shove them out there, and it's scripted, and you can design it in such a way that like you don't risk. I mean, that's the other thing too, you know, there's a lot more risk involved with having an MMA fight because if your big world beater gets his lunch eaten, well, then you've just flushed millions of dollars down the toilet, right? Um, So yeah, I think like the creation of things like Ultimate Fighter was 100% influenced by wrestling and just finding a way to create a larger bulk of content that they could build narratives around for sure. Because before the Ultimate Fighter, wasn't there already tough enough? Yeah. Yep, there was tough enough. Yeah, I mean, and like tough enough is tough is tough enough was neat. That was a neat show. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that um, I don't know. I think UFC pulls a lot from professional wrestling, and I, 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 and some of it is just because, as you mentioned earlier, like they do have this kind of shared ancestor, and they there was there has been so much overlap over the decades, you know. Um, so it's it's hard to say whether it's UFC or like MMA pulling from wrestling or if just them having the shared influences, if that makes sense. I do know some of the modern fighters nowadays are watching pro wrestling because they're creating an image of themselves that is a heel. Of course. They purposely want to appear as a heel. Ronda Rousey, man. Yeah. You know, and like Ronda Rousey like learned at the at the the knee of Gene LaBelle, judo Gene LaBelle, you know, who was a guy who was a trailblazer in wrestling and MMA and boxing, you know, his his mom used to promote fights out here. Um so now, you've gone to a lot of conventions. You just mentioned uh, San Diego Comic-Con, and I think you're probably going to more, right? I'm doing Stockton. Con- when, is this, when, does this go, when is this going up? Do you know? Next week, two weeks from now. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just got back from Stockton. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you run into a lot of people in the fandom, right? Comic books or manga or anime, video games, and so forth. And as a creator, you probably also get contacted a lot by fans. And at first blush, Everything you've talked about already, people might think of it as kind of like, well, this is all guy stuff or maybe just like white nerds with some Asian nerds mixed in in the bunch. But from just describing this room. (laughs) (laughs) But from your experience, what are fans like? Like, what are the people like at these conventions? Is it a lot more diverse than we think? Yeah. Yeah, man. Especially like when you're talking about like wrestling and fight based storytelling, you know who I mean, um, I was especially when I was doing my wrestling podcast, I was. Um, 
surprised and also delighted um, how many Mexican folks are super into professional wrestling, especially out here in Los Angeles, of course, you know. Um, but yeah, dude, um, like like things like wrestling and Dragon Ball, they have cross-cultural appeal, man. There is, there's a huge Hispanic fan base for wrestling. There's a massive black fan base for Dragon Ball. Black folks, black guys especially, love Dragon Ball. There's a big article on Polygon like uh, last year about like why um dragon ball hits so hard um for black men um it was fascinating it was really really interesting stuff i hadn't really thought about it was great um but no man i think that you know like the idea that this stuff only appeals to white guys or asian guys or just guys in general i think it in my experience, it's totally false. Women love wrestling, man. Like WWE, even when I worked there in like 2008 to 2010, um, this is well before the women's revolution. We still called them, it was the dark ages. We still called them divas. Um, <laughs> the um, Even back then, WWE would crow about the fact that like their at-home audience was almost 50% women. I mean, there's this idea that like, only dudes like watching dudes fight each other, but I don't think that's true at all. I think that it is, um, there's something primal. It's like an atavistic appeal, right? Like it speaks to something in us on a genetic level as human beings, um, seeing people fight and struggle with one another. Absolutely. All right. So Aubrey. Yeah, man. Where can people find you and how can they go buy your books? Dude, I'm easy to find. My name is Aubrey Sitterson. There's only one of me. You can Google me. A-U-B-R-E-Y-S-I-T-T-E-R-S-O-N. I've got a website. It's just my name, AubreySitterson.com. I'm most active social media-wise on Twitter. It's at Aubrey Sitterson. Instagram, also at Aubrey Sitterson. Facebook, it's different. It's Charles Aubrey Sitterson for reasons that aren't super interesting, but <laughs> you can Google and you can find it. Uh, and buy my books, man. The wrestling book is available everywhere. It's on. It's in comic book shops. Can order it for you if they don't have it on the shelves. Bookstores, your local, I mean, like not just comic book shops, but like local bookstores. Um, it's from Penguin Random House, so it's available everywhere. Amazon, of course. Um, if you don't have anybody like a shop near you that you want to use, um, no one left to fight. It's a little trickier to find because it sold out instantly. Um, it depends on when this is. This will see. The light this interview will see the light of day but uh the first issue is already out in stores the second issue hits on august 7th the the second printing of the first issue hits on august 14th um but i implore you if you want a copy of this thing call your comic shop ahead of time and ask them set up a pull list and have them set it aside for you because um the first issue the spec like it was it got a lot of buzz it got a lot of attention we were in the um and then at comic con we we sold out of the copies that Dark Horse had, we had two signings. We sold out of all the copies on the first signing. Uh, and then we were in like Entertainment Weekly did like a Comic-Con issue where they listed the 10 things they were most excited about. We were number three. Oh, shit. Yeah, man. Um, so we're getting a lot of attention. These things are going to be hard to find. It's going to sell out. If you want one, call your comic book shop, set up a pull list, uh, Get set up a subscription with your comic book shop so you can make sure you can get a hold of these things as they come out. And I'll put links in the show notes. Oh, it's on Comixology too. If you if you don't want to wait for the print like for the new second printing and you don't mind reading your comics digitally, uh, no one left to fight is available on Comicsology as well. May 17, 1963, World Championship Wrestling. Bruno Sammartino challenging the champion Buddy Rogers. Sammartino attacking from the opening bell. He's got Rogers in the air. Rogers in tremendous pain. 
San Martino with a crushing bear hug. Now San Martino rolling Rogers over his shoulder. He's got him in the pack breaker. Tony Rogers is totally helpless, and it's all over. San Martino wins in 55 seconds. A stunning defeat for Buddy Rogers. And Bruno San Martino is the new world champion of wrestling. <laughs>